This is Colossians 3. We're going to pick it up with verse 17 where we left off last time, and then we'll carry it down to chapter 4, verse 1. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The word of the Lord. Amen. Well, you can go ahead and be seated. Greetings to you. It is, uh, man, it's just really good to be in the place of worship with God's people on a Sunday morning. Isn't it good? And... um, Just to love you guys, and I know God's at work in us, and I'm excited about that. So just nudge someone and say, man, I love it when we talk about wives submitting to their husbands, okay? Just do that. It's a glorious topic. Well, um, as Joe read those verses, you no doubt noticed there are different groups of people within that church that Paul was writing to that he had a specific word for. And uh, I thought it might help to, for us to engage with this better if we identified those same groups here in the room this morning. Now, in the other services, I've just had people raise their hand, but you're special, okay? <laughs> so I'm going to have you stand up. So there's a word for wives. So all the wives, would you stand up? All of our wives, let's give them a hand. Awesome. You can be seated. Then there's a word to husbands, so let's have all the husbands stand. Excellent. You can have a seat. Then there's a word for children, and that means those supported by your parents living at home. So if that's you, stand. Awesome. All right, you can sit down, and then uh, there's a word to fathers, so fathers, let's stand. Some of you will stand multiple times, okay, that's okay. Excellent, you can sit down now, by implication, mothers as well, so all the moms stand. Yeah. Beautiful. Special day for you coming up, right? In a couple of weeks, so we're looking forward to that. Talks about slaves, so all slaves stand. Let's do this. Let's do the modern day equivalent, okay? So employees, if you work for someone, you have a boss, stand. All right, that's most of us. Give yourself a hand. Have a seat, and then... uh, Masters or bosses. So if you have people who work for you, you're a supervisor or a boss over others, stand up. Yeah. Beautiful. All right. We got all that covered. Well, suffice it to say that uh, these instructions here apply to probably just about all of us 
in the room today as well as the the original audience in that church in Colossae. And here's the question that I want us to consider today, okay? Think about this. How do you know when the gospel of Jesus Christ is getting down deep into your bones? How do you know that? The answer is this. It's going to show up at home and at work. It's going to show up in how you treat the members of your family and how you treat your boss and your co-workers at the office or the plant. Or if you're in school, how you treat your teachers and your fellow students. That's where it's going to show up. Now, God's working in my life in this area. And a few months ago, I got a call. I was at work. I got a call from my lovely wife who informed me that she was on the other side of town in a parking lot of a shopping center there and that she had locked her keys in her car accidentally. And would I please drop whatever I was doing, drive home, get the spare set of keys, drive across town and give them to her so she could get into her car and continue her day. Now, if you know me, you know that I love conserving time and energy and gasoline And I absolutely hate wasting time and retracing my steps and making what seem to be needless trips across town because somebody else messed up. So I dropped what I did. I went home. Let me finish. I got my keys. I'm driving over to the other side of town. And I'm not perturbed. And that surprised me. And I said, Steve, why are you not perturbed? And the answer from the Lord came back to me because you realize that you've been forgiven of a hundred thousand sins and mistakes and mess ups and it doesn't make any sense at all to hold one little teensy weensy offense against the woman that you love, does it? And I said, no, it certainly doesn't. And I am so glad that God's working in my life and the gospel's getting down deep right down there where I really live. Now I got a long way to go. And I still have my incidents and my mess-ups like all of us do. But I can tell it's getting into my bloodstream. And I praise God for that. He's working. He's working on us. And I want to say this to all of us. If the gospel is not yet showing up in how you treat your spouse and how you treat your kids and how you relate to the people at the office that you work with or at school, then it hasn't gotten down into your bones yet, but it can It can, and I hope and I pray that it will because that glorifies God. And I think we can say that true gospel transformation will show up not just on Sundays here in worship and not just in your small group, but in your home and at work. And so before we dive into this today, I want all of us to first take a moment and pray that the Spirit of God will plant that gospel seed down deeper into our souls today. So let's take a moment and do that. And Lord, I thank you that you are working in me. I am grateful for that. And I ask you to please not stop the work of your spirit in me and in us. And even this morning, Lord, in this passage that we're looking at, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take the seed of God's word and plant it into our hearts and may it find soft soil there and may it sink down roots even more deeply and bear fruit in our lives for the glory of God because you are worth it. And I pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, you can take the study guide out of your uh, worship folder and follow along with us. If you have your Bibles, if you're not there yet, turn to Colossians 3. We're kind of making our way through uh, the final chapters of this letter. And I think we need to not forget that what we read here in chapter 3 is not 
chapter 1. Okay, this is not the opening of the letter. Paul did not start this letter by writing, Greetings, everyone. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's not how he started it. He didn't begin by giving instructions on how to live a godly life. He began by magnifying the person and work of Jesus Christ, didn't he? Before instructing Christians on what they should do, he first reminded them of all that God has done for us in Christ. So declarations precede exhortations, if you want to think of it like that. And the reason for this is that that is where the power comes from to live the life that we're called to. That's why I like to say that spiritual growth in our lives does not begin with behaving better. It begins with believing better. I think I said that a thousand times. I'm going to keep saying it until all of us get it. That's where it begins, believing better. The Bible certainly does call us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, but that exhortation never stands alone. It's never all by itself. It is always surrounded and undergirded and soaked and saturated in gospel truth. Because the power to live a worthy life comes from marinating our minds in what God has already done for us in Christ. That's where the power and the desire comes from. And that's what we've been seeing up to this point in Colossians. Back in chapter 1, you might recall, Paul began by painting really a stunning portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ. He pictured him as the supreme being in all the universe, by whom and for whom all things were created. He took us way up into the stratosphere, you might remember, and told us that God in Christ is reconciling all things in the universe unto himself. And then he brought us back down to earth, didn't he? And he showed us that his plan is also personal, to reconcile individual sinful people like you and me to himself that it's personal God saved us from sin with the intent that one day we would appear before him holy and blameless in his sight it says a pure and spotless bride for his son that's been the plan from the beginning then Paul revealed that Christ actually lives within his people he indwells us Christ in you the hope of glory remember that Christ lives in us. He empowers us to live for him. In chapter 2, he went on to show us the utter futility of man-made religion, of religious rule-keeping, of self-righteous moralism. He showed us that that kind of a life is not only futile, but it actually diminishes the work of Christ on the cross for us. And then in chapter 3, Paul opens by declaring that true Christians have been given a brand new identity in Jesus Christ that we died with him to our old life and we were raised to live a whole new life with Jesus Christ that flows out of a whole new identity of who we are. We are in Christ and he is in us and we are united with him. Our, our life, he said, is hidden with Christ in God such that Christ is our life. Jesus is our life. And so because God has done all of that for us in chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul calls Christians to get rid of the sin from the old life that still clings to us. To take it off and cast it off like an outdated old jacket that doesn't look good on us anymore and doesn't fit us anymore. And to replace that with garments that match our new identity. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, and above all, love. 
That's what Pastor Jay taught us about last weekend. And so Paul writes, with God's peace ruling in our hearts and with his word dwelling in us richly and singing at the top of our lungs to God in praise like we were just doing. We are to be grateful for everything that God has given us in his grace. And that is the message of Colossians 1 to Colossians 3, verse 16. Then and only then does Paul instruct Christians in how gospel living should flesh out at home and at work. And that tells us that the desire and power to live as godly husbands, as godly wives, as godly children, as godly parents and employees and employers, that desire and power to live the gospel out in those roles only arises in our hearts as we grasp and embrace and believe the truth of the gospel in deep places in our hearts. That's where it comes from. Without that, it's just rules, right? It's just legalism. Commands without a backdrop of grace will just crush us and condemn us. We'll just say, I I can't live that way. I don't even know that I even want to. But with the truth of God's grace ringing in our hearts and ringing in our ears, rooted in our hearts, we start to love what Jesus loves. His grace becomes this energy source within us that propels us to obey his gospel commands gladly because we want to and we love Christ and it fits us, it looks good, it matches our new identity. So now we come to this passage and I I see some recurring themes here that I think help us understand how our new gospel identity should impact our relationships in two very important areas of our lives, at home and at work. And you know, you spend most of your life in those two places, don't you? At home, interacting, relating with your family members, and at work. And I see several things here as far as what's involved in that. What's What's involved in the gospel fleshing itself out in those settings? And the first thing I see is this, that You know the gospel's getting down into your bones when you're increasingly conscious of the Lord's presence and purpose in everything. God's presence and purpose in everything. Look back at that passage again and notice how many times the word everything is used. Verse 17, whatever you do, in word or deed, dude, in word or deed, do, dude, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Verse 22, slaves, obey in everything, those who are your earthly masters. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You know, so often people think of their lives as divided up into little boxes, into little compartments. We do that, don't we? You know, politicians talk about my private life and then there's my public life and these two don't affect each other. Or even Christians might talk about our Christian life, our Christian life, as if that was something different than the rest of our life. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I'm a Christian and all that, but business is business. Have you heard anybody say that? Have you, known, have you ever known someone who was a saint at church but a jerk at home? Or someone who was very pleasant and nice in person, but online, online, you know, on their Facebook page, they're just foul. Compartments. We all do it to some extent. 
But when I read this and I, I see Paul talking about everything and doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, I see that Paul has a more integrated view of life. He sees Christians living all of their lives before the Lord. Our Christian life, listen, your Christian life is your life. It's your whole life. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. I believe when the gospel of Christ is getting down deep into your bones, you become conscious of the fact that Christ is in you and goes with you wherever you go. When you're at home, he's with you. When you're at work, he's with you. When you're at school, Jesus is with you. You live your life before the presence of the Lord wherever you go when you're getting this. And Jesus becomes that unifying factor across all the little compartments and boxes that you've constructed in your life. Jesus. You become conscious of his presence in every situation. To me, that's both very comforting to know that Jesus is with me all the time and I live my life in his presence. It's also very convicting. He's with me everywhere. The end of verse 17 mentions a second way that gospel-centeredness will show up. Say, how can I know if I'm getting it, if the gospel's getting deep in my life? The end of verse 17, it says, giving thanks to God the Father through him. How do you know? You're going to be expressing gratefulness to God in every situation of your life. Gratefulness. Now, on paper, this makes sense, right? I mean, when you think about it, Christians have been rescued from sin and death and judgment and damnation and eternal torment in hell through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus, Christians know and accept that Jesus stood in our place. Jesus bore the brunt of God's wrath against my sin. We know that. Christians know that. That's great news. And and shouldn't that overwhelm everything else in our lives? Shouldn't Christians be the absolute most grateful people on the planet? knowing that so why does all that go out the window (laughs) when our spouses cross us or forget our anniversary or fail to live up to our expectations or at work have you ever found yourself getting all upset and annoyed and irritated because things aren't going the way that you want them to go at work or because your kids aren't behaving like you taught them to behave or because someone criticized you or worse yet overlooked you Three times in three verses here, Paul calls believers to be grateful and to express that gratefulness to God regularly and often. Not because everything's going your way, but because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That that should overwhelm us. You know, entitlement is killing us. You know that? Sense of entitlement, it's killing us. Now, you know, it's in our culture. It's very American. I know that. You deserve more. You deserve better. You're getting a raw deal. Others have it so much better than you, and you should be all upset about that. Some cultural observers are claiming that this current generation that's rising up right now, Generation Y, they call it, or the millennial generation, is the absolute most entitlement driven generation in the history of our country but I wonder about that my generation the baby boomers we felt pretty entitled too and did we raise our children in that same way to believe they are owed a certain kind of life 
Let me ask, shouldn't Christians be going counterculture on this one? I mean, we've been enlightened by the word of God, right? We know what we deserve. And we, we should get up every morning grateful to God because we're getting way, way, way more good than we deserve in this life. We are. Of all people, we who believe the gospel should be the most grateful. I'm telling you, you should get up every day and, and start your day by saying, thank you, God, for another day to be alive and to serve you. It's a gift of grace from your hand today. Because it is. All right, so how does gospel-centeredness flesh out in our lives? Well, it fleshes out in a growing awareness that we live the totality of our lives in the presence of Jesus Christ. And it should flesh out in an increasing sense of gratefulness to God for all that he's done for us in Christ. That's not to say that there won't be the little irritations and things going wrong and the car breaking down and the dryer conking out. Those things are going to happen, right? That's just life. But that our sense of being overwhelmed by the grace of God would trump all of that. Now, third thing. And really, this is the thrust of Paul's instruction on how gospel-centeredness should flesh out. Let me read it again, beginning in verse 18. Just, just listen to the word. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, that means when they're watching you, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. When I read through that with my gospel glasses on, what jumps out at me most is the concept of gospel-prompted submission. Say that word with me. Submission. Some of you hear that word and you cringe. Number three, how do I know if the gospel's getting down deep in me? You'll be cultivating Christ-like submission in every relationship. That's how you'll know. You say, well, what is submission? It sounds like a bad word, a four-letter word. Well, in the Greek, it's the word hupotasso. It means to willingly place yourself under authority. To voluntarily, willingly place yourself under the God-ordained human leadership that he has put into your life. That's what submission is. I think what Paul is saying here is that when the gospel is getting down deep into your bones, you're going to find yourself increasingly accepting of and appreciative of and aligning with the God-ordained human authorities that are in your life. Now notice from the text here where submission is most emphasized. It's with wives and children and slaves. See that? Verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands... Verse 20, children, obey your parents. That's a stronger word. Verse 22, slaves, obey your earthly masters. Now, just kind of as an aside here, slaves, it says. You need to know that the term here, slaves, refers to household servants. 
It's quite common in that culture for people to actually sell themselves into servitude for a season, often to pay off debts. They would be given lodging and food in exchange for doing domestic work around the house and out in the fields. In that Roman system, they, a slave, a household servant, could still own property, could still accumulate wealth. They could even have their own servants. They could also claim their freedom at some point. So if you ever hear someone use passages like this in the Bible to justify the kind of inhumane slavery that existed in this, in this country for too long, just know they are misusing the Bible, okay? That's a grievous sin to twist and misuse the Bible to condone sin, to condone the kind of oppression that God hates. So, what we see here is Paul calling upon Christian wives, children, and household servants to live under authority. In the case of wives, he says, submit to your husbands, not to every man, not to every male in your life. Submit to that man that you are in covenant with in a marriage relationship. Place yourself under his authority. Children who live at home are called to obey their parents as household servants are called to obey their masters. But notice that it's not just them, it's not just wives, children, and household servants, but husbands, fathers, and masters are also called to live under authority, God's authority expressed through his word. Husbands are commanded to love their wives. Husbands are under authority too. Fathers are commanded to avoid treating their children a certain way. In chapter 4, verse 1, masters are reminded that they too have a master in heaven and he's watching. He's watching. They're under authority too. So really, every Christian person, regardless of their role at home or at work, is called to live in submission to authority, whether we agree with our authorities or not. And that's where the rubber meets the road in submission, isn't it? As long as you agree with your authority, it's all good, right? It's when you disagree that submission really comes into play. Now, when I read down through this section, there is a lot I could say here. We could spend hours talking about why it is so difficult for wives to be submissive to their husbands. We could explore the lingering effects of the curse on wives and the fact that all wives have this storm roiling around inside of them that causes them to be internally conflicted towards this man that they're living with. We could talk about lazy and passive husbands who don't help things much. We could spend several more hours talking about ways that husbands can love their wives like Christ loved the church. We could talk about love languages and the five or eight languages of love, depending on which book you buy and read, and understanding how to say I love you in a way that's actually heard by our spouses. I could promote that great marriage book, Love and Respect, that's helped so many married couples around our church. I can and will promote our Marriage Matters event that takes place every month here at New Life on a Friday night that's just designed to help you and your spouse Bond and understand this covenant relationship a little bit more deeply and strengthen your connection with each other. We could talk weeks about gospel-centered parenting. We could explore the 13 ways that fathers routinely provoke and discourage their children, like it says not to do here. And I'll post those online this week if you're interested in that. 
I could take some time and espouse the radical notion of grace-based parenting. I could promote Elise Fitzpatrick's book, Give Them Grace, which is very unsettling, but eye-opening to many parents because it distinguishes Christian parenting from, say, Mormon parenting or Jewish parenting. What makes it different? What makes it, makes it distinct? And then we could talk long into the night about what it means to be a Christian employee at work, couldn't we? The dignity of working hard to earn a living, how we should be, Christians should be the absolute best employees in our companies, without a doubt. That Christians realize that we actually work for Jesus Christ. That he is actually the one who sits in that corner office. He is our boss. You serve the Lord Christ, it says. We work for him and his eye is always on us. Even if our earthly boss is in the restroom or on vacation. Jesus' eyes on us at all times. We could stress the importance of representing Jesus well by showing up at work on time, every day. Working hard. Fostering teamwork among our colleagues. Developing other people's gifts. Avoiding the water cooler gossip sessions. Not joining the whiners club. Respecting the boss. Not stealing time or money from our employers. And we could easily write a whole seminar on being a Christian boss, and treating people fairly, and exercising our authority with Christ-honoring restraint and care, and using our authority for the good of others, not to make life easier for ourselves or make a name for ourselves. We could talk about all those things in great detail, but we won't, because we already have. In another sermon series we did on a parallel passage on Ephesians not that long ago. You can look that up online. And the other reason we won't is because I only have 10 minutes left. (laughs) So what I want to do is leave you with two challenges that I see arising from this passage. And I'm going to encourage you to write these down somewhere. Hopefully grace-filled, spirit-empowered challenges. I've been in ministry 27 years and my experience during that time has confirmed in my mind the importance of giving heed to these two priorities, okay? Number one, in all of these roles and relationships, look to Jesus as your example, as your model. In all of your roles and relationships in life, look to Jesus. Doesn't the Bible talk about that a lot? Fix your eyes on Jesus, looking unto Jesus. We look to Jesus for these things as well. Think about this for a minute. You're a wife, okay? And and maybe you're asking, well, well, why should wives submit to their husbands? What's, What's underneath all that? What's undergirding that command here in Scripture? Am I supposed to submit to my husband because he's so awesome? Well, maybe he is awesome. Maybe he's not. Maybe he is on Mondays and Tuesdays, but not on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. Your submission to your husband is not based on how great of a guy he is. It's based on God's calling to you to become like Jesus Christ. And Jesus voluntarily submits to his father. Wasn't Jesus' constant refrain, I only do those things that please him. I came to do his will. If anybody lived in submission, it was Jesus Christ. And someone might ask, well, but, 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 but doesn't submission imply that wives are inferior to their husbands? And I would ask, well, was Jesus inferior to his father? No. 
equal. Equal with God. Just as you, wives, are equal with your husbands. But Jesus honored his father's position by voluntarily placing himself under, hupotasso, submitting to his father. And so wives are called to image that. Remember, we're created in the image of God. And we learned last weekend, or a couple weekends ago, that God's in the the process of renewing his image in us. And this is part of that, wives. When you place yourself under your husband's loving authority, you are imaging Jesus to those little ones who live in your home, to your friends and neighbors, and to the angels who are watching with great interest. Jesus is our model for these things. You say, well, why should husbands love their wives? What's, what's underneath all of that? Because she's so drop-dead gorgeous? Well, maybe she is on Mondays and Tuesdays, but maybe not on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. Maybe she is all day, but then when you see her the next morning, what is it about during the night that things just kind of deteriorate, you know? Sorry. Listen, listen, your, your call to love your wife is not based on her loveliness. It's not based on her lovability. It is based on the eternal reality that Jesus loves his bride, the church, and your love for your bride is to image that love so that your wife understands better the love of God for her so that your children understand that better and your neighbors and family members and co-workers and the angels who are looking on with intense interest see that God's love is unconditional and amazing and not based on the loveliness of the person being loved. And since we're talking about husbands, guys, Ephesians 5 tells us that Jesus laid down his life in order to make his bride pure and holy. Are you doing that? Am I doing that? Are you laying down your life for your wife? Are you sacrificing regularly and often your desires, your wants, your comfort, your convenience in order to serve your wife better? That's what Jesus does. And that's what godly, grace-powered, gospel-loving husbands do. They lay down their lives for their wife. If you're a guy here, your husband, you're being all selfish and demanding and berating your wife because she's not catering to your every whim and your every need. That's a distorted image of God for sure and it undercuts the gospel that you say that you believe. No wonder she doesn't respect you. No wonder she doesn't want to submit to you. And Peter would say, no wonder your prayers aren't getting answered because of how you're treating your spouse. But show me a husband who is laying his life down sacrificially for his wife and I'll show you a wife who will likely submit to that kind of servant leadership with gladness. Because if she's a godly woman, that's what she's looking for. She wants to be led with that kind of loving sacrifice. Jesus is our model in everything. In submission, in loving leadership. Well, how about students? Why honor and obey your parents, students? Why? What's, what's underneath that call to you to honor and obey your parents? Is it so you won't get grounded? Or have your Facebook page hijacked by your mom? Or have your laptop all shot up to pieces? <laughs> or have your iPhone confiscated? Is that, is that fear of punishment, fear of repercussions? 
Or by the grace of God, can you see past that to the fact that Jesus the Son obeyed His Father in everything? Jesus is our model. The Bible says that Jesus humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death on a cross. Obedient? Obedient to who? Obedient to His Father. And His obedience cost Him something, didn't it? Can you imagine in your mind the councils of eternity past when the triune God was in consultation with himself about how to carry out this plan of redemption and Jesus the Son steps forward and says, well, well, Dad, if I've got brothers and sisters down there who need to be rescued from sin and death by the sacrifice of a sinless substitute, I'll go, Dad. I'll go. Jesus obeyed his Father. That's what underlies children obey your parents God is calling you to be like him and to live out his image that's being renewed in you and because of who you are in Christ you can now how about at work your boss is cranking up the pressure to get the job done by this afternoon and you're already buried because you're already doing the work of three other employees who are all laid off this is how it works right and you're doing all of that and the pressure's on how do you respond Now, some of you know this. God can deal with your boss. Did you know that? Because that boss has a boss who has a boss who has a boss who has the boss. And you might need to go in and explain the situation to him later so he's clear on things. But for the moment, what's the Christ-like response of a gospel-soaked employee who realizes he works for Jesus Christ? Well, here it is, verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So challenge number one for all of us. Let's look to Jesus. Look to Jesus as our model for how we live among our families and how we live among our co-workers at the office. A second challenge. Make Jesus the center of your life, not someone else. Make Jesus the center of your life, not somebody else. It's ironic, isn't it, when you think about it? The best thing you can do for your marriage is center your life not around your spouse, but around Jesus. The best thing you can do for your kids, parents, is to center your life not around your kids, but around Jesus. The best thing you can do for your employer to center your life around Jesus Christ. Let me say this. Only God is fit to be God. Would you say that with me? Only God is fit to be God. When we make somebody else the center of our lives instead of God, it wreaks havoc on them and on us. So, maybe you've heard something like this. You're you're a young man, you're trying to win the heart of a young lady to yourself and with great sincerity on one occasion you blurt out I worship the very ground you walk on ladies have you ever heard that I hope not you know if she's a godly gal she doesn't want that that's going to be repugnant to her she wants you to worship Jesus not her she doesn't want that pressure to have to be God to you to try to remain worthy of your worship she knows she's not up for that 
Only God is fit to be God. Let me step on some toes here, including my own. Let me talk to parents who have, especially those of you who have young children in your home. I know parents who wrap their whole lives around their kids. You know what I'm talking about? Everything revolves around their kids' activities and schedules and wants and desires, and they're going here and 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 here. Their kids drive everything. If little Jimmy demands Dairy Queen at 10 o'clock at night, the parents are falling all over themselves to try to keep him happy. Little Susie knows she can just stick out her lip and pout a little bit or throw a fit and she'll get what she wants. Parents, we do our children a great disservice by channeling all of our energies and attentions around making them happy. Kids make great kids, but poor gods. They were never meant to be in that role. You say, well, I don't make my kids my God. Well, do you wrap your whole life around them? That's what worship is. Instead of raising and nurturing young children to grow up and love Jesus Christ, is it possible that you are training them in idolatry? And then we wonder, why do our kids feel entitled to everything and think the whole world's supposed to revolve around them? Did we feed that? Only God is fit to be God. And uh, along these lines, I just recalled back to uh, growing up in my family. I remember my mom used to make this asparagus dish, and she made it a lot. You know, asparagus is just like bland, isn't it? It's just bland. And it wasn't very good. And finally I got tired of it. And I said something. I said, Mom, can you make something else? And I remember she looked at me and she said, Well, I don't cook for you. I cook for Dad. (laughs) And, you know, say what you want about that parenting. But I got the message in that moment that I was not being raised in a kid-centered home. (laughs) And that's a healthy thing. Only God is fit to be God. You ever know parents and you, you see them, especially dads, and you kind of get the sense they're trying to live out their unfulfilled dreams through their kids. They're living vicariously through their kids. A kid can't handle pressure like that. They were not meant for that. Only God is fit to be God. The best thing you can do for your marriage is to seek Jesus first, to, to make Jesus the supreme treasure in your heart above everything else. It's the best thing you can do as a parent for your kids is love Jesus and love their mom or love their dad. The best thing you can do for your employer is to put Jesus first in your life. Well, by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live this way in increasing measure, I believe. By continually repenting and continually believing the gospel every day, we will be empowered by Christ to display him in every area of our lives and then our neighbors and our co-workers and the people who live in our homes with us and the angels who are looking on with intense interest will increasingly say Jesus is worthy of supreme devotion. And that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. So will you pray with me together? And let me ask this. 
of you quickly. How many of you would raise your hand and say, Steve, there was something in there for me today. Something in there for me today. I needed to hear something. Okay, everyone. So go ahead and put your hands down. How many of you would say, Steve, I think God is showing me that I need a deeper grasp of the gospel and gospel truth truth if I'm going to be able to live this out in my life. I need a deeper grasp of all that God has done for me in Christ. Okay, many, many, many of us. Yeah, me too. If that's the case, I would encourage you in a few moments to um, step up front, let one of our prayer partners pray with you. They're going to be here ready, willing, available to pray with you, to pray God's grace into your life, to pray that your eyes will be opened, that the gospel will sink down even deeper into your soul. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you give it to us straight. You don't soften it to make it more palatable to us. You don't shave off the hard edges. You give us your truth, but you soak it in the gospel. Lord, I pray we would be a church that lives our lives in gratefulness to you, Lord. I pray that we would love you, Jesus, supremely. And when we don't, we would acknowledge that and repent and come back to you with all of our hearts. Lord, give us the gift of humility because we know you give grace to the humble and that's what we need, Lord. We worship you now, humble hearts. We support and lift one one another up in prayer. Be pleased with our worship now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.